0: We've been measuring ourselves and we continue to measure ourselves on the white supremacist system. And we try to live up to an identity It was never built for us, mm-hmm. it was never made for us, mm-hmm. but yet we measure ourselves up to it mm-hmm. and we judge others on this system that was doomed for us to fail. Mm-hmm. So we would never be successful.
1: Welcome to our podcast series, Resistance in Colour. We explore resistance as the way that we fight the challenges, structures that negatively affect spheres of our mental, social and physical health. We hear from a host of BIPOC voices of community members featuring activists, healers, organizers, students, We will engage in how we resist, find solidarity and gain insight on how to cope within our own bodies. The series features stories of incredible resilience focused on the healing of both individuals and communities as an active form of resistance. This podcast series has been made possible by the Fund for Safe Communities grant of the Minneapolis Foundation to NAMI Minnesota's Multicultural Youth Advisory Board. Welcome and thank you for listening. My name is Pere. And I'm Cynthia. And we will be hosting today's podcast. Today we are starting our new series, Resistance in Colour, and today we will be talking with Cameron Parker, who is uh, resistant in many ways of his life as an activist, as an organizer, and as a writer, and even just as a human being who is surviving and thriving in these, the United States. And so... We'll be kind of walking through different things about his experience and his life and about how resistance has appeared to him to be in color. So maybe, Cameron, to start us off, would you be able to just tell us about yourself and the work that you do? How did you get into this work? And I guess just maybe exploring how long you have been doing it and what has that been like for you? You know, and, and just kind of walking through that, what your journey of resistance has looked like um, Throughout your life experience and what it has looked like, especially in 2020, what were like some of the highlights of the time that were surprising and challenging? This is a big question, kind of just to find out what who Cameron is, what resistance has been like for you, and especially after in unprecedented times like the year 2020.
0: Awesome. Uh, Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. Um, It's an honor, really, to be able to talk with both of you right now. And that is a very loaded question, and it's a lot (laughs) to explore in there. Absolutely a lot to explore. Mm -hmm. So I'm from a little small town in Bolivia, North Carolina, and the county is Brunswick County. There is a county that is about 80 or so percent white. Mm -hmm. and very little other color besides Black folks that are there in my experience of growing up. And I would say my journey really, it it first started really early, first with my parents. Uh, My father, he is right now currently the president of the Brunswick County NAACP. My mother, she grew up in Mississippi. And I grew up with tons of stories of how she remembered activists and different people um, that are her parents, my grandparents would be hiding in their house or hosting and that sort of thing and growing up with those experiences of Mississippi. So as a kid, I used to really gravitate towards those stories from my parents, um, my father being in North Carolina, my mother in Mississippi. And just seeing the work that they've done um, or they did throughout their life. My mother is passed now, but she left her mark. And so it started early, kind of there in my childhood with that, having that example. Right. But my own journey didn't begin until much later. I would say I really became an organizer activist in 2015. And for me, it all started with Black Lives Matter. And a couple of years before then with Trayvon Martin, when everything really started getting going with Black Lives Matter it caught my attention Mm -hmm. and it really, the the movement just really started to resonate with me on different levels. And it was something about Sandra Bland when it happened in 2015. Yes, That was the first time that I decided I was living, I had moved back, I was in Connecticut, but I had moved back to North Carolina in my hometown and i decided to look up if there were black lives matter chapters in my area Mm -hmm. in which there were in Wilmington, north carolina and so that was the first time that i attended a protest Mm -hmm. um, for black lives matter then in 2015 and what really stuck with me with that i've had a lot of experiences with police throughout my own journey in life Mm -hmm. and experiences that i have not been able to or i wasn't able to wrestle with really in that time and what happened to sandra bland was something that i identified could have happened to me very easily mm-hmm. i tell you the the most the the story that really led up to the moment of where i am now and why i do what i do is is something that happened to me my senior year in college with a good friend of mine who was from the bronx and you know he's dark skinned braided hair and stuff at the time um and i was driving up to connecticut for a job interview actually that eventually brought me to connecticut Mm -hmm. and he rode with me so he could stop by and see family and we had a good time in the Bronx. and on the journey home it was about 1 a.m or 2 a.m in the morning we were probably about 50 minutes or so outside of raleigh north carolina Mm -hmm. And he was driving my car, I was asleep in the passenger seat, and I woke up to blue lights. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he started panicking, he was like, you know, I promise I wasn't speeding. I don't know why they're stopping me. I don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, it's okay. You know, we, we just calm down. We'll be OK. But we're both anxious right at this time. Yes. College students getting stopped by the cops. You can imagine. Yes. So when the cop comes up to the car, you know, he asks for the typical stuff, license. My friend gives him his license. He asks for the registration. I go in and get that, you know, and he starts the line of questioning that Mm -hmm. I thought was very odd. Mm -hmm. This is my very first experience with police. Right. And he is, um, you know, asking where are we coming from? What was our business there? What were we doing? Mm. Do you then at least do you have any drugs in the car?
1: (laughs) Of course, (laughs) that
0: sort of a thing. And I'm like, how does it get to that leap? Right? You know, we kind of look at each other. We're like, um, no. You know, and then he goes back to his car. He has our information and he's sitting there for a while. And, you know, at this time, we're starting to panic a little bit. Like, Mm. what is going on? Mm -hmm. And so at that moment, he we notice or a few moments later, I notice a lot of cop cars start coming around. And then all of a sudden you see the drug dog coming out Um, and he comes back to the car and he asks us to get out of the car. Okay. And we're like, on what grounds? What for? Like, what? Why do we need to get out of the car? And he was like, just get out of the car, and things will go a lot smoother. (laughs) So, at this point, you know, definitely teenagers panic. We we get out the car. Yes. Immediately, you know, he starts questioning us again on the side as the drug dog starts going around my cars. Do you have drugs in the car? And we're like, I tell him, no, sir, we, we do not have any drugs in the car. And he starts again. He just says, this could go a lot easier if you just tell me the truth. And at that moment, he puts us on the ground. I remember the ground just being like cold and mm-hmm. wet um, and during this time. And we're laying there, what seems like hours. It was probably about 10 minutes as they're just tearing through my car, yes. going through everything. And he comes back one last time. And he asked me, he tells me to get up off the ground. And he's like, you know, I'm going to ask you one more time. Do you have drugs in the car? And I was like, look, I don't know what else to tell you. We do not do drugs. we never done drugs in our life. We do not have drugs in the car. Mm -hmm. And then he holds up some marijuana. And he asked me then, what is this if you don't do drugs? And so I look at him and then real quick, I get a little smart mouth (laughs) a little bit and I'm Uh like, well obviously that's not mine so it must be yours that you put there oh oh oh! <laughs> and so at that point you could tell he got a little bit red in the face mm-hmm. he got really red in the face mm. and he says you know he he, he said some words that i'll just never forget right now or i never forget ever whenever he looks at me and tells me and he holds up the drawers to my face and was like, pretty much right now, you know, I I can take you down for this. Oh, wow. But at this point, I'm going to let you go.
1: <laughs> wow. You
0: know, and he literally told me, and it wasn't, I can take you down. He said the words, I could ruin your life right now. Wow. But at this point, I'm going to let you go. And so we had to collect ourselves off the ground. You know, obviously no apologies, no none of this. <laughs> Um, get back in the car and we're kind of left with that experience. Yes. And it's, what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what to do with that for a long time. And that was the major kind of experience, but I've had several after then, and a lot that have led to over, I would say over 70% of my stops by the cops have led to drug searches mm-hmm. and me being asked to be put in the car, out of the car, put in cop cars, different stories. Mm. And so I look at what happened to Sandra Bland and that little incident, I was like, that could have easily have been me. Mm
2: -hmm. And I could have
0: been taken to jail Mm -hmm. for something, you know, that probably that I I wouldn't have even been guilty of. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And and then the fact and the mystery around her death and all these things. So it just really struck something in me. And I went out and um, that... That rally, that protest was, it just motivated me from that day on, then in that experience. And right then I, I immediately joined the chapter right there in my area and just started organizing and uh, with them since that day, uh, back in 2015, While my whole time while I was still in North Carolina. So in resistance, I would say in color for me, it has been... It's it's been a journey, like since I joined or since I really started organizing with Black Lives Matter first, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my experience has changed Uh, just with the way even on the job. I used to be a a public speaking teacher at the community at the community college in my area Mm -hmm. back then. And, um, you know, I was getting in the papers and some stuff with some things or being identified, interviewed on the news with different stuff going on in the area, and then you start hearing the whispers around the the office. Oh, he's that Black Lives Matter guy.
3: Oh, uh. and
0: you start to hear that people. I start having so many interesting conversations with colleagues, mm-hmm. and you know, and starting to talk about these issues and on so many <laughs> levels. Um, and, and so it's been it, it's been an interesting journey to just to see new relationships form, mm-hmm. some relationships end, um, just a lot of, you know, discord that can come with that. Just being involved with something as simple as Black Lives Matter, which should be a no-brainer.
3: Yeah.
0: But I would say in 2020 also, when you mentioned 2020, yeah. the highs, the lows of 2020, I, it, 2020 was very interesting.
3: Hmm. And I would
0: say 2020 was the first year that i decided to organize i say for a job like to actually get hired as a getting paid to organize right. You know? right. um everything was really about it's just what i did it was uh, my passion what i loved. but i had other jobs things mm-hmm. of that nature and i started off with organizing 2020 and it was kind of a platform to lay out uh, for the biden um, administration to come in and do their thing. And so we were in different areas throughout the country. And I was in, living in Washington, D.C., but because of the pandemic, which added a lot of interesting layers yeah. to 2020, <laughs> I was working in North Carolina virtually and organizing virtually that whole time. And I would say what was so interesting about 2020, we're organizing together tw- then at that moment. We just had Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and then George Floyd happened you know all those things yeah. so the atmosphere was very heavy and thick trying to organize in those moments too and we had this important election that was coming up yeah um so already it it was it was just uh, it was such a difficult thing to navigate emotionally yeah on one level and then at the same time the conversations that i would have with people would be so disheartening just to find out that there are a lot of people who believe a lot of warped things Mm. in in our area. And it was just kind of an eye-opener just to engage on that level, on a bigger level, when you have a bigger outreach and you're out uh, talking to lots and lots of people over the phone and doing different things. Um, So with that experience of organizing in 2020, that was very interesting, but it also had its highs too as well of of, of great conversations and finding those people who are really motivated. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were motivated to resist mm. at this point and fight for change. And that led me to the where I ended up with Color of Change where I worked the second half of, of 2020 through the election um, until my contract ran out there through the end of this past, uh, to the end of January. And that experience was completely different. I had never worked in a black space. Oh. In a space where it was, you know, just black leadership, black people, um, and all different shades of black, all different kinds of black, yes. all from different areas of the world, you know?
3: Yeah.
0: Um, and just and to have that celebrated and to have blackness be the center of everything. Mm-hmm. That was a completely different experience and concept for me to have in a workspace. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't just a token thing, you know, where we yes. had to do this thing here and there, but it was the actual work we're starting. This is the center, Everything surrounded in black joy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had such a great team, such a great experience of working with folks. Um, such great leadership. I was able to work then, of course, the, the pandemic virtually, mm-hmm. I w- was supposed to be out in Minnesota and be out <laughs> in Wisconsin and going between those two areas. Yes. But instead I had to do it from a virtual space. And I would say the connections that I made in Wisconsin and Minnesota are connections that I would still have for the rest of my life. Um, and some events that we did get to do on the ground in, in Wisconsin, voter drive events, they were so amazing. Just seeing the community so engaged and so many people just motivated for change. Yeah. Um, and experiences on the ground in Georgia, in New Orleans, working on the local DA race and stuff there. it was It was really, really inspiring. It really was. Um, and I, I would say, too, even having Cynthia come in and, and doing her presentation for our group in Minnesota, uh, that was really, really dope. And the group talks about that still, how much of an impact that was. Mm-hmm. Just um, the talk about mental health um, and the way they were being able to share that information with others. So there were a lot of highs yes. of 2020 um, that that really makes me feel excited about the future.
2: So I have a question. You know, you talked about having interactions with the police and in, in, in a pretty severe interaction your first time around that you were lucky to escape from, you know, um, unmolested, so to speak. How has your interaction with the police affected you, your mental health, um, and the second part of this question? Is you know affected your um, activist activities? I mean, you know, how did it affect you? And is that why you're the activist you are today? Is because of those experiences?
0: Starting with that last part, absolutely, Mm. absolutely. And I would say how it affected me mentally was. I really didn't understand it. You know, in some ways, I would say honestly, I probably have not even dove into all the depths of the way or the feelings that it it that it causes me. Yeah. Because I still have, you know, I don't want to be that person. Every time I see a police, I get uh, I get triggered, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's it is an element that's there and that's very real. And I would say, with my mental health, I saw it really play out in ways that I did see it play out. Um, was that it really affected me emotionally? It really affected me just in myself, kind of just the way I even view myself worth in a way. Wow. Because it can really make you feel like, are you not worthy as a human? Like, what is it about you? You know, it could drive all these questions. And then it just drives this anger yeah, and, and sadness and all these different feelings. But what I did, something that I really did, like, I... I I've gotten counseling in my life with stuff, but I've never gotten counseling on that issue. Mm. I just never felt like there was anybody I could trust and talk to. Mm. So that was a hard thing. I was even embarrassed to even share that experience with my brothers who I'm very close with. It was like an embarrassment factor to it that I don't know why that is, but it's like a shame that Mm. I kind of felt. Um, But one thing that I did and I use my organizing platform was to really work on issues where people face police violence. Mm-hmm. And I created platforms for people to share their stories mm-hmm. um, and write in writing. And um, then I would share those stories out with others, and I turned it into a series that had multiple stories that people would send me, you know, and I would get messages all the time, just of people just like, thank you. Like reading these stories have opened my eyes or the the doing this has given me an outlet to share my experience. And, and it's things people have not shared or then some stories I would share the people in the community would know someone and they'd be like, wow, this person experienced this. Mm. Maybe there is an issue because there's, you know, this person, you know, what they would consider to be upstanding mm-hmm. or moral, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Like, how could this happen to this black person? You yes. know? <laughs> and it really kind of makes people see things differently. And that was one way, and just sharing my story, I started sharing my story more. So, sharing my story and my experiences really helped me deal with it. Mm-hmm. And that became the center, really, of my activism and organizing. Mm-hmm.
1: I'd like to pick up on something that you just kind of said um, towards the end about people seeing things differently. I think in the wake of um, George Floyd and even recently with Dante Wright, it's been different questions. I guess people have always been asking, oh, he he acted too fast or they this is with. Any black person's interaction with the police that has resulted in a murder, it's always Mm -hmm. been, oh, he acted too fast or he talked back or he said something or he ran the light or he was speeding there. You know, the people want to focus on what was the flaw beforehand that then qualifies the fact that the death happened, you know. And so I think with all the recent uh, things that we've been seeing now, it's like, even if you comply, even if you stop at the light, even if your hands are up, even mm-hmm. if you're not talking, even if you're lying mm-hmm. on the ground, if you're a boy, you're a child, if you're 13 years old, if you throw away the gun, if you raise your hands and you obey what the police says, you still will get shot. There is still that possibility. So I think different those different scenarios happening now, allowing people to see things differently, as you're saying, that it's really not about what you do <laughs> that the problem is not really yes. my reaction it's not really that this is what came or that possibly that maybe you had marijuana in the car which is not the case but people always feel like they want to kind of point to that thing so how do you think i think even with what has just happened people are beginning to see issues of police violence a brutality of systemic racism less as oh this is a, you know, giving excuses for systemic racism, I guess, is a big question. How do you feel like that has changed, even with um, the big work that Black Lives Matter has been doing to kind of put out the different stories, different evidence of this is exactly what happened and there is no reason that this needed to happen?
0: Yeah, it's it's funny because in a way you can shout it to the ground all day and try to reason with people, but... Mm -hmm. It's not until people actually see things Mm -hmm. for themselves. Mm. And I feel like that was one of the big differences with George Floyd. Yeah. And being in the pandemic and everything, everybody's forced to watch that that Mm. over and over. Mm. And there was no other way to interpret what happened. Yes. A lot of times you might just get like pieces of clips and this and that. And Mm -hmm. people can't try to argue to try to reason their their viewpoint. But there was none of that with this one. Yes. You know, and I think that was a key, very key difference. Mm -hmm. And I think a part of that now has changed of people's minds and narratives. Yeah. When it comes to this, I think you're absolutely right. I've seen that shift and that change now where people realize it's not more people realize of course you still have people who are gonna argue today. Blue in the face that person (laughs) needs to comply and this and that. But I think there are more and more people realizing that, no, that's not the issue. Compliance Mm. is not the issue. Yeah. You know, that is is not it. You got to look at, you know, what is happening. Yeah. What is, you know, why are they being stopped? What is, what happens after they're stopped? Mm -hmm. What's the outcome Mm -hmm. versus this person who's quote quote unquote not compliant versus, Someone else who it? you mm-hmm. know, I mean, those outcomes have been drastically different with people of color. And I think people are really waking up and realizing that it, yeah, that is not the issue at all, that it really is systemic. Yeah. And it really is a lot deeper than, um, you know, what surface reason people may have been trying to justify for themselves. For sure.
2: I'm beginning to see um, people be more aware of how media um, creates a narrative to superimpose mm. over a, a, a video of a murder, a narrative yeah. that, that that speaks to why they deserved it. Um, and the yes. narrative isn't why it was justified, it's why they deserve it. Mm. You know, and I think of Philando Castile, and he was mm. murdered not very Mm -hmm. far from Mm -hmm. where I live. And I had been stopped previously for no reason um, feet from where he had been murdered. And Philando Castile did not fit... Uh, the 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 typical narrative and stereotype they like to promote when someone is shot by the when someone black is shot by the police right he he had you know a supervisory position uh, you know he was much respected and beloved by both the children and the people in the school in which he worked um, and then there he his child was in the in the back seat of the car and his yes. partner. And he was murdered in front of them doing what every gun owner who has gone through gun training was told to do if stopped by the police. And so then you started, I mean, they began to try and create an alternative narrative, Mm -hmm. right? So then it came down to, well, he had a Facebook posting showing him smoking marijuana.
0: (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>
2: and and i just wondered yeah, how much difference. of the rest of the world looked at that and said now that is the biggest set of nonsense i have ever seen you know it, 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 murdered in front of your own child you know without right. i don't know with i i can't even speak to it it's so amazing to me and so Um, I think, you know, that's one of the things I'm really grateful that Black Lives Matter has really worked toward combating is what I call the superimposed narrative of why you deserved it.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, I think that's an excellent, excellent point, because that that has been the the, the dominant narrative. Um, And it still goes on. You can see on networks and Certain ones and certain people that try to create all these reasons. They're doing that in North Carolina now, with um, with there with the case and trying to create all these different backstories and try to make to paint someone out to be a bad person mm-hmm. and quote unquote bad, you know. So it, it makes you feel better or okay with um, them being killed, being lynched, mm-hmm. being just right there before our very eyes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right with Mr. Castile there, that that narrative, they tried, but that was, that narrative did not make sense mm-hmm. at all
3: mm-hmm.
0: in that case. Not at all.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Not at all. And um, I had, play, I got to know his mom a little bit through um, color change and working there in Minnesota. And mm-hmm. Just even it's, And that the pain, I think people don't understand the pain that that causes, Mm. the depths, and that it's a pain that just would never go away. Mm. Um, And just, you know, just being able to have conversations with her a little bit and just other, and I just think about the families of people who have experienced this trauma, Mm
3: -hmm.
0: and that just, it's just, it's so many levels of this and the harm yeah. that it causes mm-hmm. causes and stuff and I think we have to just really continue in destroying that narrative. Yeah. You know, when you try to uplift these people, you even get the pushback of, of people saying like why are you uplifting these black folks, you mm-hmm. know? You know, they why are you up, uplifting drug dealers or uplifting this and that? They try to label them in these bad manners instead of who they are Mm. like just human beings these are people who deserve to be lifted up
1: yes for sure
0: um yeah celebrated love um those are members of our communities of it should be members of all of everyone's community Mm -hmm. so we have to really really keep fighting to change that narrative for
1: sure and you talked about earlier when you kind of began really investing more time and engaging with uh, black lives matter movement you talked about how relating with people became interesting how with co-workers that this became a conversation and I think two parts to that sentiment that I would like you to speak to one people might say okay so protest do you think it's uh, an efficient way of engaging in this political environment what what mm. what really what role does it play um in in changing things people might want to say like what's the results what, what so so then what when we when we go to the protests? Right. what then happens so how could we speak to that and then another thing <clears throat> is what i guess then with your experience answering maybe from last year and thinking about okay so what was the role maybe of the protests and the organizing that you have seen that played a role like in the electoral process so something that people can mm-hmm. see like an impact or a result of the protest that was could be tangible how would you answer those questions
0: yeah absolutely i think that is a very popular sentiment mm. and question and people that where they debate if, um, and even people within our communities debate this mm-hmm. yeah. about protests yeah. and is it efficient and stuff. I would speak from my opinion yes. and from what I witness. I believe it's absolutely an efficient way mm-hmm. to um, continue and challenge the system. It's an efficient way to work. Um, and I believe that work towards an outcome of of changes in law right? Where it's going to really make sense and really make an impact. And if it's not even a change in law, it has to first start with that change of thought, Mm -hmm. that thought process and planting those seeds. I think a lot of people, it gets, protests get a bad name because people could just say like, oh, they look at like millennials or Gen Z or this or that, or all these young people, they don't know what's going on, but... Mm. Number one, there's still older people who are protesting too as well. Mm Yes. And number number two, any movement starts with young people. Right. Like that's just how, if you look through history and everything, everything starts that energy with young folks. Yes. So that's nothing new.
3: Yes. Like all
0: this is nothing new in history and the way things are going down, Mm -hmm. going on, and. The protests, do they get your attention? Yes. Whether or not people like it or not, you're going to be talking about it. Yes. And it gets people talking. It sparks conversation.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's a an ultimate goal right there is just to bring it to people's attention. Yeah. There's people crying out, hey, I am here. I am visible. Mm-hmm. Look at me. Look at what's going on. Yes. You know, you have to get yourself noticed. So I'm all for protests mm-hmm. um, in that way. And I could say in a tangible way that it's worked. For 2020, just if, if we said that we we were talking about George Floyd, yes, I think you can see in a very tangible manner just the worldwide impact mm-hmm. that that had, mm. um, with protests that sparked everywhere, um, and now we see we see new um, ideas coming about. Yeah. You know, like the George, the, like the George Floyd pl- pl- policing act, and things of that nature. You see these protests lead into policy changes mm-hmm. being formed, and one a tangible way I think you can identify the impact of protests yes. is look at the opposition,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and now <laughs> look at what they are doing in response. Right. Look at all these anti-protesting laws. Yes. Look at all these voter restriction laws mm-hmm. and these things coming about. Yeah. Because that's that's the white supremacist system fighting back.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Trying not to get taken down. Mm-hmm. That shows you that these protests are having an impact. Wow. And I think if you really, really look at that opposition and look at the way the reactions towards yeah. things um, through people in power positions. Yes. Yes. You can see that, it, it, I mean, it, it, they are just having an impact, no doubt.
3: For
2: sure, For sure. So what sorts of things would you say to the young person um, about taking their voice um, against inequity, um, injustice, you know, what would you say to them to, to encourage them as we go through this very, very, very difficult time, because it's been, it's been difficult yeah. and change usually, you know, the, the situation usually gets worse before it gets better. Yes. Um, and so what can you say that would be encouraging um, about activism and about um, what it does for you as well?
0: Mm. Absolutely. And reminds and and kind of and piggybacking off the last question with this one, um, and just even, I would encourage one way I would encourage people, young people, to see the importance of their voice Mm -hmm. and uh, what it means is by looking at what these protests from a lot of young people have been going on. Look. At the voting impact that it led to in this last election, mm. the voter turnout. Um, look at what we did, what we accomplished. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's something to be celebrated with that. Yeah. Um. With even if it's just a momentarily, a, uh, you know, just something momentarily that we are celebrating. So I would just try to encourage them that it there is, it does make a difference. Yes. Um, people are listening mm-hmm. people are impacted you might not think that you are important enough for someone to listen to you or mm-hmm. you might not think that your story you know it may not be a, a national story or it may not you may not feel like it's something that people will gravitate to mm-hmm. but I tell you just someone with experience because I had all of those feelings yeah. and it was just like why would I put myself out there why would I write articles on this? Why would I do this and that? Mm-hmm. No one's gonna listen. Mm-hmm. But you would never—you—you you just never know the type of people who reach out to you, mm-hmm. just for you opening, from you opening your mouth. And I just wanted to encourage—I would encourage young people that there is someone out there who needs to hear mm-hmm. what you have to say, wow. and not only do they need it, but you need it as well. You need to get out there. You need this outlet. We got to stop holding stuff in um, because it really does put an impact on our mental health. It really does put an impact on our bodies and just the way we go about living our lives. And once you start expressing and opening up, it's a whole world of difference. I know it has been in my life. So I would encourage them. And I would say, just like you said, it does take time yeah people have been doing this for their whole entire lives and people have died and not seen change Mm. you know in those levels but it doesn't mean that it wasn't working
3: for sure
0: like we see where we are now if people felt this way 100 years ago (laughs) or so we would not be where we are now Mm. amen
1: i mean i think i hear you i hear you say that and then there's a voice in my head that says but when, you know, yes, <laughs> but yes. but when, but when does it change? If we're saying, well, you know,
0: that's our that's our social media immediate culture. We got this like right now kind
2: of thing. But you know, my favorite statement out of this whole movement is "Time's up." Oh, yes, time's yes, up. yes. This is now. This is when. Yeah.
3: Yes, hmm. I oh, agree. Well.
2: And
1: uh, maybe. Maybe we can jump onto the uh, the time is now by a lot of I think what a lot of people play on to remain resilient um, and I think Mm. is a big picture of what resistance in colour sounds like and and that is black joy. And that's Mm. something that you talked about while you were at Colour of Change. Could you just speak a little bit more about what that looks like to paint a picture of what I guess black joy is as resistance, as what resistance in colour looks like?
0: Yes. Oh, I... Black joy is is I, I feel like it's multi-layered, mm-hmm. and that experience can be different for different Black people. But there are things that are, that is a collective kind of identity with it as well. Yeah. But I believe it's it's really just celebrating who we are and mm-hmm. our culture, uh, music, mm-hmm. you know, um, just food. <laughs> um, things like that are just so central to our identity mm-hmm. um, the concept of home and who we are as people what makes us who we are because yeah. especially black in america mm-hmm. i believe like that concept of home is something we have been so distant
2: from for sure,
0: mm-hmm. and it's something we didn't really get to it, it was robbed of us. Mm-hmm. i mean it was taken away mm-hmm. and so that fight for that is, is, is something that we create. Uh, it's very unique with, with Black folks. is the way that we can create a home
3: mm, and yeah.
0: identity, and it becomes a power source of, you know, of, of the world. <laughs> it is something people gravitate to, mm-hmm. towards, you know, and pop culture and all these different things. It's stuff that we create yeah. all the time. And I think celebrating that stuff um, and who we are, and I think it's super important just for our just own confidence, our view of our self-worth, yes. just to really fight the system. Mm. And one thing I just say, it, it, we always measure, we've been measuring ourselves and we continue to measure ourselves on the white supremacist system. And we try to live up to an, an, an identity Cynthia's getting really excited here. (laughs) It was never built for us.
2: Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm.
0: never made for us. Mm -hmm. But yet we measure ourselves up to it Mm. and we judge others on this system that was doomed for us to fail.
2: Mm. Absolutely. So we would
0: never be successful. Yeah. And we keep trying to do this, whether it's like, you know, it could come out of simple things like hair or dress Mm. or masculine feminine all these different concepts mm. all these white identity things that we keep trying to that were created for i mean particularly the white man to stay in power mm-hmm. and we keep measuring and live, trying to live up to these things but that's not us that's not our culture i feel like black joy is it is really celebrating mm-hmm. the true nature of who we are right and and just living in that inspiration and having that be your your driving source of the way that you live your life so sure. like you can't touch me you can't touch me boo <laughs> no like i am that. from a different
2: level here right i am <laughs> on a different stratosphere right and i think it's fun to think that way hmm. I totally agree. And I, I, this is my soapbox, as you probably already know, uh, uh, Cameron. But the other thing that I, that I would like to add to Black Joy is, is, is that, you know, when we step into academia, we yes. end up getting, I'm going to use the word brainwashed, um, mm-hmm. and we start to use language that always leaves us lacking, um, you know, disparate. Um, You know, Mm. um, minority, Mm -hmm. um, underserved. Marginalized. Mm -hmm. Marginalized. My hair stands (laughs) up on the back of my neck for that word marginalized. (laughs) Yes. And as as we're seeing, you know, the the population of white people decrease where they will, in fact, be minorities. I don't know if you've noticed it, but there is a whole new set of language, none of which um, is the language that has been used to describe, you know, people of color and less represented people. And it's so interesting because um, inherent in this language is the idea of pathology you know inherent in this language is the idea that you've done something wrong which is why your stats compared to that of your white peers are higher or lower you know and and so when i think about how whenever the data is reported about anything relative to people of color um, how it is always compared to the white peers, and that serves a very, very, very important function in white supremacy. Number one, it says as you compare to the the best standard. Mm-hmm. The next is 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 that something's wrong with you if you if you're not at that same level. Um, but when you look at things, for example, I have never, ever, ever heard um, a disparate. Um, um, a a, a disparity referred to when you look at suicide rates for black people have historically been extremely low as compared to white people across almost Mm -hmm. all age groups. Right. But you Mm -hmm. never hear their data compared to their black counterparts. Never. Mm. I, I spent some time looking through the research to see if I could find any language that could prove that theory wrong. And so now that we're seeing um, that that the numbers of white people are decreasing, what you're you're seeing a whole new language that portrays their situation as minorities as a more positive um, um, position. It's so interesting. You know, this is one of my fields of study in school as well, and something I'm really interested in. But it is how things like racism um, are communicated indirectly. Um, And so we have this whole medical mental health language that serves the purpose of enforcing white supremacy and having us be the enforcers, Mm. you know? So that is wow. No, no. You have opened my eyes right now to something.
0: (laughs) I didn't even really look at it from that perspective Mm. and really in terms of the language and the way that, can I tell you one thing that has always bugged me? And, you know, I go off about with my brother Buzz up too, my brother here, and just roommate, different things. We talk about it all the time. It's just why this big focus on like the white, you know, don't forget about the white working class or the white this and that. And, mm-hmm. You know, it's all this narrative of how they've been forgotten and this and that. But you're so right, the way that this, the way that white folks are talked about now in that sense is not in those same terms. Then mm-hmm. language and you know, there's power to language. I'm going to, I'm
2: going to really start paying attention to that yeah. right now. Well, my, my last word here is <laughs> my last word that just absolutely Uh, drives me to have an extra cup of coffee is this word (laughs) microaggressions you know
0: oh boy yes (laughs) i don't know
2: have we had this discussion
0: we have not
2: (laughs) okay well i'm going to give you the two-minute elevator speech microaggressions (laughs) are those common everyday things that you know of racism um, mm-hmm. perpetrated against black and brown people, and the way that it's described is is, is that they're minor things where the, yes. the the individual perpetrating the microaggression didn't intention it. It wasn't intentional, and so this is the biggest scam going. Seriously, here's the thing: <laughs> microaggressions are the things that from conception through our entire life, result in people having higher levels of hypertension, diabetes, you know, uh, um, stress-related illnesses, and that contributes to whole groups of black and brown people dying 10 years earlier. Mm. So black people have a 10-year shorter lifespan because of these stress-related illnesses. 10 years, that's a lot. By the way, that's considered a public health crisis, in case anybody was wondering. It's a public health crisis when a whole group of folks die 10 years early. So here's the thing. Wow. There was a study that was done here in Minnesota by this doctor, and they followed the lifespan of black people born and raised here. And then they followed the lifespan of African people who immigrated here right and as long as they were not born here the the african people had the lifespan of white people that extra 10 years the minute they had a baby born on this soil their lifespan reduced whoa Mm. and we want to call it a microaggression (laughs) so this so and i'm micro about that (laughs) exactly nothing is micro (laughs) if something can kill you 10 years earlier Change the quality of your life. Mm. That isn't micro. And my question is, is why would we then focus on the unintentionality of the supposed unintentionality of the person perpetrating it and not the the outcome of the action? Right. Right.
0: Yes. Yes. <sighs> you know, and I think that's a Ooh. common theme. It even relates to back when we're talking about policing and all this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the outcome is never focused on right it's always another factor something else and i think you said i want the reasons why i think you said and what you i'm sure there are multiple reasons but one that comes to mind would be my opinion is something you said as as you were going through um all that was that it makes people feel better it's easier. Mm-hmm. You know, when she says, it's really not that bad. right? You know, I didn't mean, it's unintentional. Yeah. Because the worst thing ever for a white person to be is racist. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's, it's uh, oh, I didn't mean it. You know, it's unintentional. Mm-hmm. It's okay. You know, you shouldn't be that mad about that. Because right. I just need to learn. I need to be taught. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it's just a way that, for people. It That's something that bugs me too. <laughs> as it's, it does it's just a way for people to feel better about themselves yeah. after
1: man i think we've like explored so many different areas but <laughs> also I haven't had enough time to like dig into the same same many I, I think things that we've touched on but i guess as we think about uh, and as we come to a close of our episode today i think as the th- the things that we can control. I guess we are, we're not able to control many things now, but yeah. some of the things that you mentioned, we were able to. We are able to control. Is I mean, I, I guess what we're doing, what we're doing as part of the movement, what we're doing as educating ourselves, and how we are mm-hmm. surrounding ourselves with with in places or in communities that kind of give us that black joy. And so as we come to a close. And we're thinking about this theme, wow, resistance and color, that can be exhausting, that it Mm -hmm. requires so much (sighs) effort to remain resilient, to remain resistant. Thinking about closing remarks here, what would you give to our listeners and what kind would you share with them about things that they can do or we can continue to do as an act of resistance that will be difficult for sure, but really truly is, is is what will keep us sane and, and kind of yeah. taking care of our wellness as an act of resistance and color.
0: Absolutely. I think that's super important. Number one, I, I've i learned in, in life, like you do have to take care of yourself. Hmm. And it's okay to be tired. It's okay to feel overwhelmed and to step back. Yeah. For a minute. Yeah. I like that's totally fine, and that's something coming out of this election that I learned with myself. In 2020, you know, it, it was rough, and we've all been through a rough time through in so many different ways. Right. And I, I honestly like I, I just took a break. Like uh, I was like I'm not writing anything. I'm not dealing mm-hmm. with this. I'm not watching the news. I'm yes. not. You know, I yes. had to take a little break. I went and got, for the first time in my life, I went and got me a manicure, and pedicure, yeah. and for you. <laughs> you know, sorry, yes, I got some massages, you <laughs> yes. know, did this, relaxed by the ocean, it's, I, I, you have to do things like that, mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you're able, you know, where a lot of us are in different situations where you can't do everything that you might want to do, yes. but there are ways that you can look on the level that you are to relax and take care of yourself. If it's just turning on the TV and zoning out, mm. cutting off your phone for a little bit, yes, not watching the news or just you know doing something that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. In that you have to do that. So take care of yourself, number one, right, first, and be in your mind. But we all know there's work. There's work to be done, <laughs> yes. right? Mm-hmm. And we know we and we there's work that many of us want to do. And a lot of us can feel overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. It's like, how can I make a difference? Or, you know, I'm not able to go out there and protest. So I'm not able to um, write this or that or do that. I think one thing that you can do and what I, I did in my journey was stop looking at things on such a macro level uh-huh. right? and just looking at on things more on a micro level, mm-hmm. just little things, mm. if it's having a conversation with a neighbor, Yes. if it's um, signing up for a text campaign, Yes. if it's, you know, identifying some local group in your area that's doing something and maybe you can volunteer one Saturday mm. and doing something. Uh, maybe there's, I mean, you could see this might be a little bit more macro, but maybe there's uh, some need in your community that you don't see being addressed yeah and maybe you just want to bring it to an attention whether if it's um you know writing a letter to an editor Mm -hmm. uh the paper (laughs) um it's it's just so many different levels of ways that you can make a difference Mm -hmm. and i just doing something is better than doing nothing Mm. And if it's, like I said, if it's just as simple as opening your mouth to talk to someone about something going on, Mm -hmm. that goes a long way. Because then that person could turn around and talk to someone else, right? And then it's like this domino effect that happens. Yeah. So I think we have more power than we give ourselves credit for Mm -hmm. if we just... Don't look at, don't feel like you have to change the world. It's Mm -hmm. not going to happen just by your act, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, that, that happens. Don't put that responsibility on yourself or you're just going to fail. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to be doing a fail because you're never going to measure up. For sure. But just do whatever, whatever makes sense. For you and where you are. Right. And for what you can have to handle. And I would say the lastly, if it's just reaching out to someone to ask a question, yeah. what can I do? Mm. You know, and maybe someone can help you identify what it is that makes sense or something that you could do, some kind of way that you can help yeah you know beyond beyond a hashtag or anything like that or just social media <laughs> yeah you know there are other ways that we can make an impact that
2: i think could go a lot further
1: for sure for sure oh wow
2: cameron you're amazing Yes, and we want to thank you so much um for participating in resistance in color um You've given us some pretty amazing insight um, and guidance as we, we go through this series. Um, and we hope that we can loop back around to you for our next series of, <laughs> of podcasts. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I've really enjoyed it. And yes, because some of the work I'm doing now is actually uh, with uh, organi- the some of my best friend actually started a project called Block Chronicles. Uh-huh. And Cynthia, you know, I already contacted you about this <laughs> and we're, we're working on a, on a short documentary now of first generational COVID students. And we just do a lot of other work of just surrounded around um, Latinettes and other people of color, just artists, educators, things of that nature and telling stories and just highlighting the work that they do. They do. So there's definitely work that I'm still doing and working on that I would definitely love to wrap back around with y'all and keep y'all in the loop about. Great, great.
2: (laughs) Put Teddy in your phone as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes.
2: Thank you again so much, Cameron,
1: for being with us today.
0: Thank you. Thank you all for having me. Visit
1: NAMI Minnesota online at namimn.org. All music loops used in this episode came from the song titled The Way, produced by Mike Lighty and made available through a Creative Commons license. Mike Lighty's music can be heard online at soundcloud.com forward slash Mike Lighty. Lighty is spelled L-E-I-T-E. For information about the Creative Commons license and additional links to Mike's music,
0: including the full version of the song The Way, Please see the podcast show notes for this episode.